uh, will you pray with me, please? Lord, as we gather um, this morning, we're here to focus our attention on you. And not only to sing your praises and to honor you with our hearts and minds, but also to listen to what you want to say to us. And so in these next few minutes, Lord, we pray that you would... Um, that you would block out all the distractions that might come our way, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to each and every one of us um, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been um, wrestling this fall with what we've been calling God questions, and um, sometimes you wonder, well, you know, does it really make any difference? Is it just stuff that Greg and I think up and we've got to kind of somehow have something to talk about on Sunday mornings? I mean, then you have a conversation like I had after the first service with one of our college students who was home for the weekend and said that um, she was really grateful that we're doing this series because these are the kind of questions that come up in dormitory discussion at night, and not just at secular universities, but also at Christian colleges. These are the kind of questions that they want to wrestle with and deal with and think about and um, in some ways um, have some kind of an answer to as they wrestle with them in their own life and listen to other people who come to them, these, these God questions. Today's God question is, um, why should I believe in the Bible? You know, why, why should we believe that this Bible is the truth? Why should we believe that this Bible is a guide? And generally, our answer as Christians is to say that, well, because it says so in the Bible, or that's what we've always thought, or that's what we've always taught. And we went through a responsive reading um, a few minutes ago in this service that's taken from uh, the Psalm 86 and Hebrews 4 and John 20 that talks about the Word. God's Word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword that penetrates uh, and sorts the deep things of our soul and our spirit. And we believe all those things as Christians. But when you say that to a non-believer, they just look at you with a blank stare. Right? It would be a little bit like um, coming to me, uh, you know, uh, stopping me. Um, let's say that I was at a Starbucks once. I was there once. And, um, and somebody comes up and goes, uh, so is Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, you know, uh, is that a good church? Oh, that's a great church. You'd love it there. We got, I, I mean, I'd, but I'm not a very objective person about Elmer's Christian Reformed Church. And so when we ask believers about the Bible, we don't have a very objective answer. But when you, when you ask non-believers and you tell them that believe in the Bible because the Bible is true and it says God's word and you start quoting, quoting scripture, they don't care. Because it means nothing to them. They have not yet affirmed that the scripture is authoritative to their life. And so we have to have a better answer than that. We have to come up with something more. When people become members of Elmer's Christian Reformed Church, for instance, or any other Christian Reformed Church in the country, they're asked this question. Do you believe in the Word of God, the Bible, as revealing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world? And when you answer yes, you're saying that you believe in the Bible and that you believe that the Bible is true. And one way for us Reformed types to speak about our belief in the Bible is to say that the Bible is given by the inspiration of God and as such is the infallible rule of faith and practice for all mankind. To which many non-believers would say, really? Well, isn't that quaint? How nice of you. But I'm part of mankind and I don't believe that at all. So why would I believe that? Why should I believe that? 
Isn't the Bible just another ancient book that's a collection of stories? Some of them sound like myths. Some of them are made up to explain certain things in life. There's lots of other literature that is like that. Why is the Bible any different than any of those books? And that's what we want to look at today. And we're going to do so by kind of springboarding off of what um, Luke writes in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where he explains to a friend, an acquaintance, Theophilus, why he is even putting together still yet another gospel. I mean, weren't Matthew and Mark and then John enough? Do we really need a fourth gospel? Well, everyone is a little bit different, and here's the reason that Luke was putting his together. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So over the next few minutes, what I would like to do, to paraphrase Luke, is to undertake the drawing up of an account, of an account of the Bible that I've spent some time investigating from the beginning, and I trust that in the end, you'll know the certainty of the things that are actually included in the Bible, which is ambitious for like the next 20 minutes, but, you know, let's try it anyway. As Christ followers, as longtime church people, it's possible that believing in the Bible has never even been a question for us. I mean, if you were baptized as an infant and your parents fulfilled their baptismal vows and exposed you to Christian teaching your whole life and you went to church on a regular basis or involved in, in what used to be called Sunday school or some form of education at the church and also then maybe even sent to a Christian school, the question, well, do I believe in the Bible and is it true, may have never even come up in your life. We just automatically accept it. We never ask the question. It's never even there for us. So is the Bible true? Or is it inerrant, as some of us like to say? Well, that depends on what you mean by true or inerrant, which isn't necessarily a smart aleck answer. All I do is have that possibilities in my life. <laughs> but what do you mean by truth? Is it true about what? Is the Bible true about science? Is the Bible true about geography? Is the Bible completely accurate in every way about history? What do you mean when you ask whether or not the Bible is true? Now, one of the ways that Christians like to talk about the Bible is to say that the Bible is inerrant, it is true, and everything it intends to teach. And I like that answer. Because it reminds us about what the Bible is intended to do. The Bible is not intended to be a science book to teach you about all the science. The Bible is not meant to be a book about all of the geography of the world to be completely accurate. That isn't what the Bible is about whatsoever. The intention of the Bible, what it intends to teach you about and all of us about, it intends to introduce us to God and to tell the story of God and his people from the beginning of time to the end. And its most important purpose is to introduce us to and to point us to the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. That's what the Bible intends to do. And so when we ask questions that the Bible doesn't intend to answer, we're going to come up with bad answers. 
Now, recently I read uh, one person's take on the Bible. They spent a lot of time reading the Bible, understanding the word, looking into the history. And this is their perspective on the scriptures. One way to describe the Bible, written by many different men over a period of 3,000 years and more, would be to say that it is a disorderly collection of 60-odd books, which are often tedious, barbaric, obscure, and teem with contradictions and inconsistencies. It is a swarming compost of a book. Now that's an interesting image. An Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murk, history and hysteria. Over the centuries, it has become hopelessly associated with tub-thumping evangelism and dreary piety, with super-annotated superstition and blue-nosed moralizing, with ecclesiastical authoritarianism and crippling literalism. Let him who tries to start out at Genesis and work their way to Revelation conscientiously be aware. Now, for those of us who claim this as the word of God and the only rule of faith and practice, we find that description rather offensive, do we not? But I can see how they arrive there, can you not? I mean, like to say, for instance, that the Bible is barbaric. Oh, there are some horribly barbaric things in the scriptures. Read any account in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel conquering another nation. And read the instructions of God to wipe out every living soul and to take no captives or nothing for yourselves. That, to me, sounds a little bit barbaric, does it not? Or um, the story about Abraham and his son, where God says, well, take this son that you finally have and take him out to this lonely place and um, put together an altar and get all the wood there so that you can sacrifice your only son. That sounds slightly barbaric, does it not? And can you imagine in modern day thinking about all the counseling that Isaac would have had to go through to overcome that trauma in his life? My dad was going to kill me and offer me as a human sacrifice? Doesn't that sound barbaric? And it talks about the tedium of some of the Bible. Um, anybody read through Numbers lately? A little tedious. Or Leviticus? Or some of the other books that we can't figure out, what relevance does this have for my life? Why are they even talking about this? Why did God include it in the canon? I mean, I understand that description by someone who is completely uncommitted to God. So having spent some time investigating, let me see if I can help us know with certainty that we believe in the Bible and what we believe about the Bible, and that it indeed is true in everything that it intends to teach. I mean, do we even understand what the Bible is? The Bible is not a book. It is not a book. The Bible is a collection of 66 different books written at very different times for very, very different purposes to very different audiences. 
I mean, I mean, just look at the New Testament. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all giving their accounts of the biography of Jesus. Many of the stories in those books match up completely, but some of them are a little bit different because each of them had a different audience. I mean, Matthew has all sorts of quotations from the Old Testament and honors all sorts of Jewish traditions. Why? Because Matthew was trying to convince the Jewish audience, of which he was a part, that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. Mark? Mark didn't care about all the... Mark has nothing about Mary and Joseph and angels and birth. There's nothing in that. If you had the Gospel of Mark, we wouldn't have anything to do with Christmas but make stuff up. Because he was trying to simply point to Jesus as Lord and Savior and cut all of the fluff out and go, this is what it's about, and this is who he is, and this is what he did. Just the facts, man. And Luke, as described in the first four verses of chapter 1 is a physician very methodical complete investigation making sure he has everything right a complete accurate uh, portrayal of what he found and knew all sorts of different purposes all sorts of different ideas 66 different books I mean the apostle Paul is kind of a um, New Testament hog in terms of uh, you know, authorship, right? Thirteen of the books in the New Testament are attributed to the Apostle Paul, each to a different church, each for a different cause, each for a different problem, answering different questions. Sixty-six different books. It is not a book that you start in Genesis and read Revelation and go, oh, I get this. This is completely, makes all the sense in the world to me. It's called a canon. And and a canon literally means measuring stick. So it wasn't like randomly selected pieces of parchment that they put together and said, oh, this looks good. There was a measuring stick. There was a criteria for placing the Bible together that was developed over time and a very precise measuring stick. And especially for the New Testament canon that was put together. And there were three basic essential criteria that were uh, used to put together the New Testament. Um, one was the one that, that, that Luke cited. He went out to, to interview eyewitnesses. And so did someone see, was someone with Jesus or have a direct relationship with him? Secondly, is it consistent with the rest of the things that we know from other eyewitnesses or is it so far-fetched that we could never believe it to be accurate? And thirdly, is it something that in the history of the church where it was debated about what books should go in and not go in at the various councils of the church, including and in particular the Council of Nicaea, did we agree on this as being part of the canon? And once it was agreed upon, it really hasn't changed. It's a canon We believe that the Bible is given by the inspiration of God. We used this a little bit earlier in our service, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, so that the servant of God, all of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's inspired. So when you um, read the creation account and God creates Adam and Eve, when he creates Adam, we're told that God went to Adam and breathed life into him, right? It's like CPR, the first CPR thing that ever took place. God breathed life into Adam, and Adam came alive as God's creation. And we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. The, The Bible helps us come alive, and it comes alive for us when we use it and read it and associate with it. But a skeptic would say to all of that, now that's interesting. 
But why should I believe in the Bible? I mean, why is it true? Tell me why it's true. Is there any objective truth to why you think the Bible is true? So let me point to three areas um, that historically people use to talk to skeptics about the truth of the Bible. One is archaeological proof. How does archaeology support the Bible? We have to understand that archaeology can't prove that the Bible is true, but it, help, it can help conf, um, confirm its historical accuracy. I mean, excavations in the Middle Eastern cities verify that the, the customs that Abraham practiced in the, uh, in the Old Testament are the very same customs that were practiced by others in the 18th century B.C. culture. Excavations in other cities confirm Joshua's conquest of Canaan, David and Solomon's building of the nation of Israel, the demise of the divided kingdom, and the Babylonian exile. Archaeologists can affirm that, and historians accept that. An interesting discovery was made by one archaeologist in 1930 who went to Jericho and excavated the city of Jericho. And Jericho was always uh, kind of a focus of skeptics, um, disbelief in the Bible because how could a city collapse and be completely crushed and then have people go in and live in it? What was left? But the Bible describes the falling of the city of Jericho, and I'm sure you all know this detail, that the walls fall out and not in. They fall away from the city and not on top of the city, so the city wasn't crushed. And people would go for years. Now that, that would never happen. That never happens. You can't crum A city can't crumble that way. Walls don't fall that way until they excavated in 1930 and found that that's exactly what happened at Jericho, that the walls fell out and not in. <laughs> it confirmed what skeptics were suspicious of. The Gospel of John describes one of Jesus' miracles being the healing of a cripple at the Pool of Bethesda. And in 1888, traces of that pool were found near a church in Jerusalem. And Luke, who promised that he would investigate and report everything that he found, has delivered the most detailed descriptions of people and places of all the Gospels. His descriptions of the enrollment of taxpayers, for instance, the listing of Quirinius as the governor of Syria, naming the cities of Lystra and Derbe as the province of Lyconia, all at one time were called into question by people until it was confirmed as fact by archaeologists. No one believed it before, but then they went, oh, we can't argue with the evidence. It's in. So archaeologists confirm a lot of the things that people are skeptical about in the scripture. Secondly, textual reliability. How, how can you rely on the text of the Bible? I mean, some of them were passed on through an oral tradition, and certainly you can't rely on oral tradition. I mean, if I was to start, um, you know, if I was to whisper something in Ruth's ear here, and it went back over there in the corner to where the venomous are, do you think it would be accurate by the time it got to the venomous? I mean, if I was to say to Ruth, you know, last night I watched the Cubs game in a uniform. By the time I got to Jim Venom, it would be, hey, last night, Rev washed the Cubs uniforms. I mean, we can't even be reliable from here to there with our oral tradition. We don't trust one another. Have you ever noticed that periodically there are mistakes on our screens? Like words are spelled wrong, it might not be exactly right. You know, you, know, you might think we just don't care and that you're right. <laughs> we don't care because we try as hard as we can. And I always say, you know what, we're striving for excellence, we're not trying to practice perfection. 
but we read them, we type them, two or three people read them. Sometimes you know, and we, we, it, it's kind of an inaccurate translation. How in the world could you tell me that this is accurate if we can't get it accurate from my office to the screen? Well, we have to understand that first of all, the oral tradition, historically, as you study it in um, cultures that use the oral tradition, amazingly reliable. Because that's all they had to rely on, right? Jim doesn't have to worry about whether I washed uniforms or not, because he can come and ask me, well, what did you do? <laughs> but when you pass on a story from one generation to another generation to another generation, and you rely on the oral tradition, it's amazingly accurate in all cultures that ever had part of an oral tradition. Because that's what they depended on relying on. And if you didn't have it accurate, oh, you paid a price. The manuscripts, the scrolls that the Old Testament were worked on, they, they were written down word for word, copied from one to the next. There was a precise description as to what kind of paper or papyrus could be used, exactly the kind of ink that could be used, exactly the spacing between the lines, how many words could be across the scroll at a time. It was very precise and checked and double-checked and triple-checked. And if there were any errors, those scrolls with errors were all thrown away. So all we had were accurate scrolls. And in the New Testament, we're told that it's probably the most reliable ancient document that we have available to us. How many of you have ever heard, uh, this, is, this is really not about the New Testament so much, but how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? How many of you could tell me what the Dead Sea Scrolls were? Oh, you've only heard about them. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 on the West Bank of Israel. And uh, they are these ancient documents, Old Testament books. Um, and they dated back to a thousand years earlier than any other document that we had. So previously we were using documents that, that were a thousand years old. Now you've got these that are, oh man, this is really close to original authors. When you check the accuracy a thousand years back to the present when they were found, 99.5% accurate. That's pretty good. The texts are amazingly reliable. Clark Pinnock, biblical scholar, writes that there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. In other words, there have been more skeptics of the Bible than any other piece of literature or writing that's ever been done. More people have examined it. More people have checked it out. And it is more accurate than anything else we had. I mean, when I was at, um, a freshman at Hope College, um, I chose, okay, I was forced to take World Literature One, And World Literature One included the Iliad and the Odyssey. Anybody read that stuff? Edge of your seat excitement, page by page, I understood it all. Okay. The documents that we have in the New Testament can be traced with much more accuracy than the Iliad or the Odyssey. And I never remember the professor of my world literature class going, oh yeah, well we can prove the accuracy of Homer because lots of people have examined it and they can prove it way back. That never happens. But they've done it with the New Testament. The third area that's probably the most popular criticism of, of the Bible has to do with science. And particularly around the creation story, right? 
And it kind of boils down to um, an argument between those who believe in the Big Bang Theory and evolution and those who believe in creation or what we call today, because we are politically correct, intelligent design. Now, you know, my son, I was going to say, I'm not a scientist. My son actually teaches biology and environmental science. Um, he went to Michigan State University after he graduated from Chicago Christian, and I don't know how, how to explain this to you. They taught different ideas about, about the beginning of the world at Michigan State than they did at Chicago Christian. Shocker. But he knows all about evolution. And you know all about intelligent design. And I'm a simple person, okay? So if you take creation and take the argument back to the beginning, you cannot prove without a shadow of a doubt that God created. You can't prove it. But nor can you prove there was a Big Bang Theory in evolution. Both of these arguments, both of these theories, and they're both called theories, kind of fall apart as you move back in time. And both of those things have to be accepted um, on this thing that we call faith. Now, the problem that happens with people with the Bible is they try to use the Bible in the wrong way. Remember earlier I said that the Bible is inerrant in everything that it intends to teach. It does not intend to teach us on how the creation story took place. It doesn't intend to teach us, boy, how did this all work out? Or why did it all work out that way? The Bible only intends to teach us about what happened. Now, if you are a scientist and you go back and look at the order of creation, you know, from chaos to light to the separation of earth from water and so on, it's amazingly accurate. In fact, it's very accurate. Now, would I stand and fight you about the fact that God created the earth in six in the world in six 24-hour days? No. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how long it took. And the Bible can't answer that question. It does say six days, but I don't know what those days were. Could have been 24-hour days, could have been 1,000-year days. It really doesn't make any difference because that's not what the Bible's trying to teach me. The Bible's trying to teach a very simple thing. In the beginning, God created. That's it. That's all it's trying to teach us. In the beginning, God did it. He created it. He'd set things into motion. Now, I would say that it's hard to imagine that you could ever be in a birthing room when a child is born and not believe in intelligent design or how the human body works or how things take place in the world. But there are many people who do not, and I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. But I do understand what the Bible is trying to teach us. So is the Bible true? This much I know is true. The Bible tells the truth about God and about his love affair with humankind. Pastor and writer Frederick Buechner says that the Bible is a book about both the sublime and the unspeakable. It is a book also about life the way it really is. It is a book about people who at one and the same time can be both believing and unbelieving, innocent and guilty, crusaders and crooks, full of hope and full of despair.
In other words, it's a book about us. And it's also a book about God. It's, if it's not about the God we believe in, then it's about the God that we don't believe in, but it's about God. One way or another, the story we find in the Bible is our own story. The Bible is the truth. It's the truth about who we are and it's the truth about who God is, neither of which make us that comfortable. It's the truth about how we should live with one another, about those things that we should value the most. The Bible's about our purpose in life, about where to go to find true meaning and significance and value. The Bible is the absolute best manual we have for marriage and parenting and work-life balance, as we call it today, and leadership and management and grief and suffering. But most importantly, the Bible is a romance novel. It's a love story. It's the story of God's love for his people and the lengths that he will go to be in a relationship with us. It's a story of God's Son, who is our Lord and our Savior, who's a friend of sinners and the hope for all mankind. It's the story of grace, God's unmerited favor, which was poured out to us freely, that you and I don't have to earn God's unconditional love, that he just gives it to us, which is hard for us to imagine. It's the story of forgiveness. Every ounce of guilt and shame that you and I carry around in our hearts and minds every day is forgiven freely through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a story about reconciliation. We were once distant from God, and we keep distancing ourselves from God. But God reconciled that relationship through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, who died on our behalf so that we could be one with God. The Bible is the truth. And the truth? will set us free. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for what we call the Word of God, which um, means that you want to be in a relationship with us, that you want to let us know your will and your way, that you want us, most importantly, to know you and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your word. Help us to learn to read it and to love it and to let your Holy Spirit make us understand it. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, just a couple of announcements before we continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings. Um, World Renew is um, a segment of our denomination.
that seeks to um, provide world relief, especially in times of disaster. Certainly there has been a disaster um, along uh, Haiti and the other islands and then along the east coast of the United States through Hurricane Matthew. A lot of people wonder what we can do. World Renew knows what to do, knows how to do it, provides resources. And so our deacons have authorized us to take a special offering, which means that over the next couple of weeks, um, you can send money uh, designated for uh, Hurricane Matthew relief. Um, the instructions are in your worship folder this morning about how to do that, but very simply, if you want to write a check, um, you can do so. Just put um, Hurricane Relief in the memo, memo, or you can go online and press Give, or on our app and press Give, and you can scroll down and there'll be a chance uh, for you to um, give to World Renew in that way as well. And I forget exactly what the date is, but there's a couple of Sundays uh, that kind of give us a chance to respond in that way. Also, um, this is the last quarter of the year um, as we try to figure out what it means to uh, continue our ministry and have the financial resources to do so. We know that historically in our church, uh, we receive about 40% of our tithes and offerings during this last quarter of the year. I want to encourage you to keep that in mind, to participate as best you can, and to be generous givers as God has been generous to us. Let us continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings.